But John always felt very strongly that you must go where the evidence leads. You must write up the research as the evidence shows you is correct. And you must have the courage to stick to it, even if it's not easy to do it. A giant has fallen. John K. Berman, the former longtime CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, recently passed away. This is a great loss for us at the Institute, as well as to the liberal community in South Africa more broadly. For this episode of the Solutions Podcast, I wanted to reflect on the life and legacy of John K. Berman. What follows is a series of short interviews that I conducted this week with various former colleagues and people who knew him and who were inspired by his work. I hope that you enjoy these tributes as much as I did. All right, well, I think that it is very fitting to start this conversation by talking with the incumbent CEO of the Institute of Race Relations, John Endres, uh, who has worked in various capacities with JKB over the years and now holds the same position that JKB held from 1983 until 2014. So, John, a very sad occasion for the Institute, but also an opportunity for us to reflect on JKB's life and his legacy. Do you want to share any thoughts on behalf of the Institute uh, with the audience today? Yeah, certainly a very sad occasion. Um, so JKB was an important person, not only in the life of South Africa as a country, but also very important, of course, to the Institute, which he led for uh, three decades, about one third of the entire lifespan uh, of the Institute. And uh, it is certainly a loss that is very deeply felt by all of us, uh, the staff members at the Institute, but also the broad, broader IRR community, which includes former staff members, board members, council members, uh, uh, members, so voting members of the organization, all of whom feel quite a strong affinity to the organization and also to JKB, who really left his mark and his, uh, his legacy uh, as, the, as the IRR, as it is today. And we can certainly talk about uh, John's intellect, his productivity, his capacity, his willingness to engage in the battle of ideas. And he actually perfected that battle of ideas theory. But I think also managing an organization like the Institute is a very complex task and a great burden to bear. And he found the Institute in quite a state of disarray when he joined in 1983. Uh, could you speak about his managerial capacity and how he imposed his vision on the Institute? Well, I think when, when JKB took over as the CEO in 1983, he confronted really two very significant problems. And the first was financial. The Institute had effectively run out of money um, and needed urgently to be recapitalized. Uh, and that was something that uh, John attacked, I think, with his typical energy and enthusiasm. It was a problem that he solved very effectively with the support of some large corporates in South Africa, who at the same time also helped him address the second problem. And the second problem for the Institute was that it was uh, engaged in too many diverse activities. So there was a handicrafts program, there was a, a feeding program, and there were many, many very diverse activities. And uh, at the time it was felt by the backers in the corporate community and ultimately by JKB as well, that maybe the Institute really needed to figure out what it wanted to be and then focus on being that thing and you know, doing the very best that it could. Uh, and that is something that John Kenburn also managed very well. So he uh, focused the organization on becoming a think tank, on producing high quality research, and on being a very authoritative and respected participant in the public debate. Yeah, and a big part of that work was also elevating the profile of the socioeconomic survey, or the South Africa survey, as it was called at the time, and uh, you know, really cataloging uh, what was happening, truly understanding uh, the events and trends that were shaping South Africa, which at the time was undergoing a fundamental transformation and transition. And I think this uh, maybe highlights one of those really special characteristics of, of John Kane Berman, which was the ability not only to uh, master and understand a vast array of complex data, but secondly, also to gain the correct insights from that data, which pointed him in the direction of the unsustainability of the apartheid system. So I think he was able to read out of, out of the numbers that eventually would have to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions as it eventually did. And that was buttressed furthermore by his previous work as a journalist. We had worked on the labor uh, and union beat uh, at the Financial Mail and gained some very deep insights, I think, into South Africa's labor markets 
into the situation of the companies in South Africa and understood that for South Africa to work, uh, it was really necessary to integrate the whole population. It was not possible to make it work while excluding most of the population from the economy, from business and from opportunities. And John, in terms of the managerial challenge of managing a group of often headstrong, highly intelligent liberals, uh, that is quite a task in itself. And I'm sure it's something, a challenge that you are familiar with. Um, could you speak about the kind of the character of the Institute and the role that JKB played in shaping that character? Yeah, as you point out, it's not, not an easy kind of organization to manage um, because liberals by their nature value their independence, uh, independence of thought, independence of action, their freedom. Uh, and when you bring all of them together in one organization and try to get them working in the same direction, um, it, is, it is something that needs very careful uh, management, I think, and attention. That is something that John Cain Berman did very well. Um, I think he recognized that there were times when it was necessary to become quite uh, authoritative and to decide in which direction things were going to go. But that in order to get the buy-in of the staff uh, at the Institute, it was also necessary to uh, demonstrate the ability to lead, to arrive at the correct decisions, and also to uh, generate the correct analysis that would uh, substantiate the kind of decisions that he made as a leader. So John, what do you think is JKB's legacy, particularly as the Institute moves forward and deals with similarly uh, large challenges in terms of political realignment and uh, transition. Uh, and we are very familiar, obviously, with the problems in South Africa. The work is by no means finished. But how do we uh, carry that, that torch forward uh, that, uh, that was held by JKB for many years? Well, I think uh, it's important to recognize how decisive the role was that the Institute played and that John Cain Berman played in the democratic transition of South Africa. Uh, because if you think about it, the constitutional negotiations took place really between two main parties. And both of those were nationalist parties that considered the role of the state to be central uh, to an economy and to a polity, polity like South Africa. And it was the voice of liberals like John Cain Berman and many others uh, in the community, including the IRR, and also the Democratic Party or the Progressive Federal Party as it was before then, that really uh, injected the ideas into the, into the public debate that found their way into the constitution that we have today, which turned out to be a liberal constitution. I think without that kind of influence, South Africa today would be a very different country. Uh, it would be far more uh, centralistically uh, run than it is at the moment. It would be far less contested. Uh, I think debate would not be as interesting as it is. And the kind of country that we live in today is really a legacy of people like John Cain Berman. Uh, and it is also an inspiration to us as we move forward into South Africa's future, uh, which looks like it's going to be a future uh, of coalitions, for example, rather than one party dominance, as has been the case for many, many decades. Um, and within that context, also, it is upholding the values of liberalism, such as the uh, rule of law, freedom of speech, small government and free markets, which are really the cornerstones of any prosperous and happy uh, society in the world today. John Endres, thank you very much for sharing your reflections with us. I'm now joined by Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, who is the Head of Policy Research at the Institute of Race Relations. So Anthea, you joined the IRR in 1990. That was a very tumultuous time in South Africa's politics. Could you give us a sense of the context of the time in which you joined the IRR and your relationship with John, both intellectually and professionally? Absolutely. As, as you say, I joined in 1990. This was the year in which uh, the state president, F.W. de Klerk, embarked on his bold liberalization moves. He unbanned the ANC, the SACP, Yomkonto Wesizwe. He threw the door to democracy open. And I think there was a wide expectation that we would then embark on a period of greater stability, that there would be less violence than there had been in the 1980s. And the opposite happened. Political killings went up by three times. So the violence was far more intense in the early 1990s than it had been before. And uh, so this was one of the issues that John wanted me to look at when I joined the IRR. And uh, I, I quickly realized that John was not somebody to go with the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom was to blame this upsurge in violence on a third force. In other words, on elements of the police and the Encarta Freedom Party, the IFP, 
working together to attack the ANC and to derail the transition. And John said to me, I don't think there's much evidence of this and what evidence there is seems to crumble under scrutiny. So what other explanation can there be? And so I started with his help looking for the, the explanation. And a, a great deal of research took us in the end to the ANC's visit to Vietnam uh, in an October 1978, where the ANC had learned the formula for people's war, the mix of political and military struggles that you need to achieve various objectives. And two were particularly salient at this time. One was that these, this formula could be applied against political rivals, and the IFP was an enormously important political rival to the ANC with far more support within the country than the ANC had ever had. And secondly, this formula could be applied to give the insurgent movement, to call it that, uh, advantage in the negotiations process to pretty much make sure that the negotiations would take place on terms that suited the ANC in our context. And um, the more one looked at the formula for people's war, the ingredients of it, and what was happening on the ground in South Africa, the more you could see the parallels. Uh, not perfectly, of course, with what had happened in Vietnam, but sufficiently strongly to, to really suggest that this was what the ANC was engaged in, an intensified people's war, so that it could further weaken the IFP before the first oil race election and put great pressure on the negotiations process so that it was finally able to achieve what Joe Slova called a famous victory in negotiations in November 1993. But this was not a popular view. So John faced resistance from within the organization. He faced criticism from without. Um, and he faced always the, the, the danger that uh, funders might have less interest in supporting the IRR if we were following a track that was not the conventional one. But John always felt very strongly that you must go where the evidence leads. You must write up the research as the evidence shows you is correct. And you must have the courage to stick to it, even if it's not easy to do it. And um, that was just so typical of John. And I valued enormously that he supported me through all that work and that we were able to bring out a number of important books, I think of his own little monograph called Political Violence in South Africa, which came out in 1993, which was an important critique of the third force theory in particular. And then what I was later able to do in writing about the Natal violence and bringing out a book which really laid out all the elements of people's war. Um, but there was other things going on too, particularly we were getting closer to, to the moment of transition to 1994. And, uh, the ANC was likely to achieve a great deal of domination over the new South Africa, which was what the People's War was intended to achieve, and what sort of policies would the ANC want to introduce. And John saw the risks in too much of a statist and interventionist approach, and he said that what South Africa most needed as the alternative to apartheid was not a new form of racial and economic engineering, but a free and open democracy based very much on the principles of classical liberalism. So that in the political sphere, there should be checks and balances on executive power. We should have the doctrine of the separation of powers. We should have a court able to use judicial review to strike down both legislation and executive conduct that was at odds with the constitution. We should have a justiciable bill of civil liberties that were protected against incursion by the state. But in the economic sphere, we should also see that economic freedom was the, the other side of the coin to political freedom and just as important. So therefore there should be a focus not on state intervention, but rather on the kind of policies that would promote economic growth, that would encourage free enterprise, and particularly that would liberate the poor. And John saw that as both a moral and an economic imperative. He said the tendency in many countries was to treat the poor as a sort of separate category and then target them with wars on poverty, which often boiled down to any number of transfer payments, which, which built dependency rather than self-reliance and were ultimately often not sustainable. 
So he believed that in liberating the poor, you must help them to join the mainstream of the economy and escape from poverty in the same way as everybody else by earning their own living. So what were the obstacles to that? What were the, the barriers to employment and upward mobility? And that led him to focus, as, as I did too, and quite a lot of my work, on the coercive labor laws that were pricing the unskilled and inexperienced out of the labor market, on the very poor quality of education that was not empowering people with the skills that they needed, that these were two critical areas which needed to be got right if you would have the liberation of the poor. And also in the racial sphere, he very clearly saw that non-racialism is a principle that we should embrace immediately. It's in the constitution as one of our founding values. And yet the, the ANC has always taken the view is that it's a distant goal to be achieved at some point when we've used enough racial classification and racial preferencing to bring about demographic representativity in every sphere. In other words, to make sure that people fan out into the economy and into the workforce strictly in accordance with their share of the overall population. And that's a goal that can never be attained. It never has been in any country around the world because people are too intrinsically different and you can't treat them as sort of blank slates and people that can just be slotted in here and there. Much will always depend on individual characteristics, on education, on opportunities, and you need to put your focus on removing the barriers to upward mobility, not on the supposed normal demographic representativity, which is completely uh, <laughs> a theoretical construct, not a reality in any, in any society. And John said, so therefore we need non-racialism now, not at some point in the future. And hence his belief too, that at most there might be a soft form of affirmative action where business would be conscious of the disadvantage that many people had experienced during apartheid, and there would be a process of training and mentoring and perhaps fast tracking to help people rise up to the corporate ladder, but you shouldn't have rigid racial quotas of the kind that the ANC has introduced and which have been so enormously damaging. And there, Jeffrey, thank you very much. Right, we're with Paul Pereira. He worked with JKB for several years. Paul, what are your reflections on the personality of JKB and also his way of thinking, his intellect. Thank you, David. Uh, it was a great pleasure to work with John. I was with him through most of the 90s. It was a tense time in South Africa. It was a tense time in terms of violence, in terms of political maneuvering, in terms of people taking quite solid positions and sides. And uh, there wasn't enough uh, interaction across the lines, as it were. And John was the right man to be in, in such a time because he had a very inquiring mind. So he didn't, he was intolerant of the intolerant, but he was tolerant of everyone else. Uh, he was driven really by a sort of a broad liberalism, one that based itself on human rights. So he was always interested, however he approached the topic, whether it was in the labor relations field, violence, bail conditions, whatever, he always focused down to how people were being affected. So what would bring greater choice? Where was the, an indecency uh, and that sort of thing? So he, he had a love of justice um, and he wouldn't allow, therefore, himself to become a propagandist because that is disrespectful of people and it's disrespectful of, of the future. So he was, he was very keen on being evidence-based, fact-based, very accurate, uh, intellectually vigorous, and to approach matters uh, from those sorts of angles. So he was a tough guy to work for. He was the most formidable of editors, but he was a great mentor, a great teacher to many people. And I sometimes think, you know, you can, you can say, right, well, I have taught and, and empowered, to use a current term, this person in my staff. But you often forget that there's a knock-on effect when they then teach somebody. So there must be, people all around the world that John uh, affected in that way and, and sort of raised their standards and, and their levels of, of rigor and intellectual honesty. There's something that I really admired about JKB was his productivity and his industry. And, you know, every Monday morning without fail, there was that op-ed uh, written in the most incisive cutting language. I think if I had to emulate anybody's writing style, if I were to adopt somebody's writing style as my own, it would be JKB's. Uh, 
the precision of his analysis, the clarity and the flow was, was really quite remarkable. Yeah, he had a, firstly, he was a Renaissance man. So he knew a lot of stuff. He never stopped learning. So he could approach things almost naturally from a, from a vantage point that was being informed by decades of, of research, of reading, of curiosity. And he wasn't only interested in South Africa. He was interested in events and trends worldwide of all sorts, particularly in politics and economics, philosophy. So that was, that was a, a, you know, he was a man of great depth, but he was also very self-disciplined. So for instance, he simply would not work on a weekend. Um, but then he worked so hard through the week that, and he was deadline driven and he was, he was disciplined. And I, I think again, that speaks to respect, respect for other people. And, and he had a lot of that. I was always a great admirer of JKB and his work, uh, but even though when I was still back in the office, uh, pre-pandemic days, I would see him uh, walking around the corridors. He was then a, a policy consultant. Yeah. Um, you know, he was perhaps a bit of a difficult person to actually get to know. There was maybe always a, a bit of a healthy distance that he kept from from others. Very polite and professional, but well, always I felt think, that I you think... were at arm's length. Yeah, I think John was introverted, um, and sometimes he was socially awkward. He could be a bit eccentric, too. Um, but he was nothing if not polite. So there wasn't, you know, when I, I, I was thinking the other day, he was a tough but not a hard taskmaster. Uh, and there's a difference. So there, was, there wasn't nastiness to the man. Um, but you know, something about an individual like that, when, when they are personally quite humble, is that it must be, you imagine, quite a challenge to go into the public square, and he did it all the time. So he never failed in his duty to that. He was never locked away. He was on, you know, in, he was at events, he was leading conferences, he was addressing audiences, he was writing, he was on television worldwide for decades. But I wonder if that must each time have also involved a little terror uh, for him because he's a naturally very private person. So there's something to admire in that too. And what do you think his legacy is to South Africa and to the liberal community in, in this country? Well, I think John, you know, in 1966, when he was still a schoolboy, there was a, an economic theorist called Michael O'Dowd, came up with what was known as the O'Dowd thesis, which basically said apartheid will break through its economic illogicality uh, and this country needs to integrate and the economy can't continue to grow without black expertise and technical skills and so education and everything else. John knew that instinctively and he already saw it in the 1973 uh, textile workers strikes that were across Natal and, and the Transvaal uh, he knew that as a turning point, because instead of looking simply at formal politics in the way of politics is everything, everything is politics, he looked to what ordinary folk were doing, and he saw them as the real agents of change, of that they were the heroes of an epic that was unfolding, and because he could see that was beginning to happen, he could start tracking the retreat of apartheid. Now, people were not doing that. He was the first to actually realize when it was happening. And he followed that through for over the next 20 years. And it means that he could encourage reform. He could encourage discussion. He could encourage uh, people to look at possibilities of where things could move. And he called that the silent revolution, how ordinary folk voting with their feet through urbanization, through uh, taking jobs that weren't allowed to them by just acting in their self-interest were breaking the system peacefully and in the end made it unworkable. It was a key insight. Um, and it guided him right through those years when, when some people would have said, well, no, there's gotta be a civil war because the state is, is immovable on this level. The uh, movements in opposition are immovable. In fact, there was movement to the center. Um, the least likely outcome most people thought would be a liberal democracy. To John, that was the most likely outcome. Uh, the question was how to encourage it and to try and obviate the suffering along the way. Here's Martin van Saden, formerly of the Free Market Foundation, now with Sakelicher. So Martin, you are part of a new generation of 
young people who have been inspired by the classical liberal idea. And do you want to reflect just on the persona of JKB? I don't know if you knew him very well, but also the ideological influence that he had on the IR and on South Africa more broadly. Yeah, David, I, I wish I knew uh, the man better than I did. Uh, I, I, as it happens, I met him only three times. Um, and uh, one of those was an event at the Free Market Foundation about the history of of liberalism in South Africa, which which I hosted, um, and that was uh, right before the COVID uh, lockdown in February of, of 2020. Uh, but unfortunately, I, I didn't have much interaction with him. But of course, I've I've read many of of the the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words that he has written, uh, even in just in in recent times. And and of course, uh, it it really struck struck me how. Um, how he was the personification of what a classical liberal really should be or what a liberal should be. Uh, and that is that uh, uh, the left and the right needs to be mad at you most of the time. Uh, you, We make our allies and, and he was very good at this. I, I know he had close relationships with the IFP back in the day. I know uh, he, he also developed a very good relationship with Afriforum uh, in, in recent years and with the solidarity movement. And these are all perceived as somewhat right-wing and so forth. And then of course, uh, in, in his younger days, um, the IRR worked closely with so-called left-wing organizations to oppose um, uh, apartheid. Uh, but in equal measure, the right and the left was often mad at him and at the IRR. And it, it comes in with this uh, uh, this narrative that I've, I've seen in, in recent months uh, or, or well, in, in the last two years at least, that the IRR somehow changed under uh, JKB's leadership in the 80s, that it became, it went from a non-racial organization and became this almost American type right-wing entity in the South African uh, scene. And I mean, it's, it's actually positive that the left is saying this because it, it says that liberals at the IRR are doing exactly the right thing. And that is that they're remaining consistent. And this is what uh, John Kane Berman did. Uh, uh, he, he came into the leadership of the foundation of the of the IRR uh, right in the middle of what we call the liberal slide away of the 1980s, uh, and this is when uh, formerly classical liberal people uh, were so taken in by the ANC and its 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 armed violent struggle against apartheid. Um, and this is when uh, JKB took over, and he kept the institute out of that fold. Uh, the IRR did not slide away, as of many other liberal organizations. One thinks, for instance, of the Black Sash, uh, the um, National Union, Union of South African Students, which uh, John Kane Berman was the, the president or the chairman of uh, when it was still liberal, but it too fa slid, slid, slid away uh, with many other liberal organizations. Uh, and the liberal slide away, in fact, got worse in the 1990s of the transition. Uh, uh, many uh, people at that time said that, no, because we now have this democratic government uh, after years of authoritarianism, it should be given the benefit of the doubt. It should be le left alone to do its thing. Uh, and luckily, uh, John Kane Berman and many of his colleagues at the Institute said, no, that's, that's simply not going to happen. We are going to keep applying a liberal standard to the actions of this government as we did with the previous government. And now, of course, the, uh, the uh, commentariat who favored the, 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 the so-called democratic government believed that this meant the IRR has now shifted to the right when in fact it simply applied its standard consistently regardless of who was in power. And I mean, we saw this quite recently as well um, in, in a far less intense way, but uh, when uh, John was commenting on the electricity crisis in South Africa, he wrote an article in the Daily Friend about uh, how I, I believe the electricity market should just be opened up to, uh, to competition. Uh, and this is, of course, the correct free market liberal position that he took. And then the DA, in fact, responded to him. The, the uh, personification of liberal politics in South Africa said, no, no, we, we have to stick with renewables because, because of this, that, or the other reason. And John stood firm. He, he wrote a response and he said, no, the, the, the correct position, whatever the technical circumstances are of coal power and nuclear power and whether they'll get funding or not and what the EU thinks about it, that is irrelevant. As far as the South African government is concerned, there should be an open market there. And this just showed that uh, it, uh, uh, John didn't um, 
uh, didn't defer to to other liberals. He knew what the classical liberal position was on a thing, and he stuck he stuck with that, regardless of whether it's popular, regardless of whether it's 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 unoffensive. Uh, it didn't bother him that he offended uh, the left or the right at any given moment. And that is really a, an example for all of us, young, uh, up-and-coming classical liberals, yourself included, of course, to, uh, uh, to follow. Uh, it's, it's, more, it's now uh, more uh, in vogue than ever before to just not say something because it might offend someone. Mm. And we need to resist that with all the force that we can and really follow this example that, that, uh, that John set and just say, we're gonna, we know what's right. We know freedom of the individual, free markets, constitutionalism, and the rule of law are the right answers to South Africa's problems. And we will stick with them, even though we might offend everyone in the process. And uh, we owe a debt to John for setting us that example. Yeah, and I think John was often quite disagreeable. And that, I think, was actually a very good quality to have because mm -hmm. it actually enabled him to stand firm and uphold those principles that you spoke of. And many of our leaders in politics and in business today uh, don't want to offend. They want to be... Uh, adored by by the masses, um, they want to go along to get along, and often that's not the right strategy, and that ends up amplifying a lot of the bad policies that have been so destructive in South Africa. Mm, no, absolutely, yeah. And he, he was disagreeable. I I, my, my, I myself was the victim to that uh, the few times I I met him, but uh, I, I I can't judge him for that. As you say, you you kind of need that type of personality to really uh, uh, stand strong on your principles in South Africa. And uh, uh, as I said, we, we owe him this debt and uh, we, we need to be careful uh, in, in picking the leaders that we try to mimic. We have great uh, liberal leaders in, in the political parties and so forth, but we must remember that they will go where the, where the, to the path of least resistance to political uh, victories. And uh, luckily, uh, John didn't have that problem. Uh, he, he set an example in the Institute where even if the funding uh, draws up because the Institute is sticking to its guns, he shrugged his shoulders and uh, went ahead. And that is something that his successors in the IRR, uh, Dr. Franz Cornier and Do Dr. John Enders, uh, have, have stuck with. So that's just another example of, of John have, having said, listen, uh, 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 let, though the heavens may fall, we will stick to, to the classical liberal line. And that's, that's absolutely what South Africa needs right now. Right. Well, now I'm joined by Temba Nolachungu, and he is a director at the Free Market Foundation and also a member of the IRR Council. So Temba, you knew John quite well over many decades. Uh, how did you originally get to know John? Oh, well, I met John uh, for the first time quite a number of years ago. It's difficult for me to actually say. We can, we're talking about maybe about two decades ago. And he was doing a presentation to an audience. This was in Cape Town. And he, what struck me about him was how he put across the classical liberal uh, ideas, free market ideas across to the audience in a way that was very smooth and logical and uh, coming across as being so, so, so clear, so clear in thought and leaving almost no room for debate, but for, for discussion, uh, not necessarily at the ideological level, but having cultivated the audience to be receptive to his presentation at the beginning from the very word go, and uh, this was a man who welcomed debate, who welcomed debate, and the content of his presentation on that day, the very first time that I saw him in action, were just so good. And they came from, from an intellectual person. Uh, he was an intellectual giant. That, that's what I came to understand about him later on during interactions with him. Uh, in the in the coming years, I remember also there was a seminar on political correctness that had been organized uh, by the Institute of Race Relations, together with the Friedrich Naumann Stiftung. I was one of the presenters, and the other presenters were people also of high intellectual caliber, and. Uh, 
So that was a very good, 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 good event that took place. And John was the facilitator towards the end. He presented a summary of all the inputs, which was so masterful, so perfect. And, and then I remember also after the event, informally, he berated me, you know, over the night, you know, uh, uh, he berated me a bit very slightly and said, Tamba, you, you, you mentioned some things that were not contained in the paper that you had presented to me beforehand. So I said, well, John, sometimes I get carried away because for me, this is a, a cause you know, just putting across the ideas of that are that are informed and enlightened by the clear, the classical liberal paradigm, free market paradigm as well, being part of that. And so he said, "I forgive you." And uh -huh. then I was to meet with him later on during the constitution drafting process after several pre presentations by him, and I saw him in action doing a presentation on what had to be considered to be enshrined in the constitution, including the property rights clause, including federalism, that we needed to have a federal state. And I saw him in action and, and he was also engaging other political parties, the you know, uh, leaders that he had identified and the caucuses of the various political parties. And he was just so excellent in putting across his ideas. And they, his ideas somehow were similar and consistent with those of the Free Market Foundation's inputs. But listening to John and, and, and watching and listening, uh, watching this man with his smooth presentation, very measured presentation, I knew I could see that the people that he was addressing becoming more receptive, more receptive to these ideas. So we look at the constitution that we have today, uh, which is uh, loaded all over the world. One should always be conscious of the fact that John was one of those crucial people that made these positive inputs to the constitution that we have today. We have a property rights clause in the constitution thanks to people of the caliber of John Kane Berman and the Free Market Foundation and a few other people. Now, something that stands out about John is the fact that when he, when he assumed leadership at being at the helm of the Institute of Race Relations, he accentuated those basic fundamental values that defined the Institute of Race Relations. And so he catapulted them to a level where they became the basis for the Institute of Race Relations engaging parliament directly on policy issues, on policy issues. To my mind, that had never happened before because I had joined the Institute of Race Relations in, in 1975, but John elevated the work of the Free Market Foundation to that level where the, the actually engaged the government, the government policies, so to speak, on a non-partisan basis, a non-partisan basis. Uh, that was one of, of John's achievements. And uh, he was, John, such a person of integrity, real integrity. He oozed integrity. And that is something that really left an indelible impression on me and influenced me in terms of sticking to coming across as a person of integrity and believing that integrity is the most important to my mind of all the virtues of, of people. Any, with any individual, I tend to judge them in terms of whether they have integrity or not. That's thanks to John Kane Berman and also other people. This was such a fine person. He really was. I, 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 we will miss him, especially at this time when one sees that the center, left of center forces, political forces seem to be feeling that they're riding 
the crest of the wave in terms of the policies that are emanating from parliament, he really spoke truth to power. I know that phrase tends to be used, used loosely by just about everybody, but the point is he actually was one of the few people that spoke truth to power. That was John Cain Behrman. And I, I, was so moved by, I was so moved by him that when I got to hear that he had passed on, the first thing that came to mind was a poem by William Ernest Henley that is that bears the title Invictus. And that poem actually depicts the kind of person that John was. With the fixity of purpose, he would just soldier on and put across the ideas that if implemented would translate into the, into the greatest good for all people, prosperity, improvements in socioeconomic realities. And he did not carry any favor with anyone. With, he did not prostrate himself before any political parties. He would just articulate the views that would mean that that resounded with, with many people that if implemented, I want to repeat this, would translate into high economic growth rates, greater prosperity in the shortest period of period time of time. And this poem, I'd like to recite it. I hope I will not stumble. And because I came across it when I was at Lovedale in 1964, Lovedale High School, and it left such an impression on me. And I recite this one, a great person has passed on. The title is Invictus, which means unconquered. Here we go, I quote, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from coal to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fair clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged the punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. For me, this poem is just about John, a wonderful man. I know that until when he elevated the work of the Institute of Race Relations, that incurred the wrath of some of the few detractors that he had, or detractors of, of the Institute of Race Relations, and, but he's just soldiered on. And it is quite clear that a person of this caliber, leaving the imprint on the ideological, political, policy landscape can never be forgotten. And so his influence will always be felt as we move along to engage all these status policies that seek to control people's conduct generally and want to dictate to people as to what is in their best interest, what should be done for them. We will always miss John Kane Bannon. He was such a good man. And I'm, I'm proud to say that a good friend as well. Thank you very much for sharing your moving words with us. My name is Piet Leroux, I'm the chief executive of Sarkelicha. I met John about 12 years ago when I came to Pretoria from the Western Cape to work for a trade union called Solidarity. And that was the old mine workers union. But um, I met John there where I think he was invited by Flip Bass, who was in the chairman of Solidarity and the Solidarity movement that came from that. And it was a very Afrikaans crowd. And John coming from his background in the RR, was well respected and I remember often when we reflected and John was there on more than one occasion uh, when we reflected upon what John had said that there was high regard for what John had said his insights um, and that um, there was always respect um, and that John was always welcome and it was always appreciated that he reached out and spoke um, at these Afrikaans organizations to an Afrikaans crowd um, with, with, and it was, it was, uh, it was always uh, very hearty, heartily done, of course, in his erudite way. Um, but there was, uh, there was great appreciation for John, and I found that remarkable coming to, uh, to Pretoria and, and meeting John there. 
Uh, one or two anecdotes about John. I remember a few years later when uh, some with some colleagues, I was still working, I think, for Solidarity, and we went to a speech John delivered on the National Development Plan. And uh, the, everybody was enthralled by this development plan, but except for a few people, among them John and uh, my colleague uh, Paul Joubert and I, and I recall us sitting there, and uh, John said he knows, he was speaking, and he said, I know why people um, uh, support this plan, it's because they haven't read it. And uh, that was at the, uh, the very same thing that my colleague and I thought, and I recall uh, that, and of course, it makes sense. John would have read something before he supported it. And that is telling because in South Africa, so much was supported without proper thought. But John was not somebody who, who did not give proper thought. And then finally, I remember John, uh, I ran to, into John a, a few uh, weeks after uh, there was some controversy because I was a board member at the University of Stellenbosch on the council of the university and I had made some statements saying that uh, Bladen Zimandi, the then Minister of, of, of Education, was uh, Transformania uh, was his thing and that the whole country is too much focused on Transformania and race and so on and uh, there was an, an attempt to get me rid, get me, oust, oust me from the council and uh, John wrote a column in Business Day where he said, well, no, this is, should be freedom of speech and there is indeed Transformania in South Africa, it's an apt description. Uh, and uh, it was a column in my defense. I appreciated that very much at the time. I was very young still and, and John was the senior person who said that, those words of support. And I believe that was his last column a few weeks later. Then he told me that he was told after that column that, uh, that that was his last column and he was not going to write that column anymore. So um, his last column was, was dedicated to me and whether that caused the end of it, I don't know, but it certainly was um, something I appreciated very much. and. Uh, mm. and, uh, and I think fondly and highly of John and at Saaklicha we, we think highly and fondly of him still. And those columns had a major role in shaping my thinking as a young man and I think it was unfortunate that there was no obituary to John in the business day. But we are, are actually here uh, at the funeral service of Mr. Kane Berman and do you have any final thoughts Peter, on his life and his legacy? I think John, um, as we had the funeral service here, um, was um, striking to me how well it was attended and by whom it was attended and uh, the high regard everybody here had for John um, and certainly uh, I think John will be remembered through his works uh, and through his work at the RR and perhaps that institutional legacy is the greatest of them all and through that um, John's ideas and his contributions will continue. Peter Rue, thank you very much. Uh, so John, uh, just as we bring this conversation to a close, I wanted to reflect on the last page uh, of your biography. And you say that more than 50 years ago when I joined the Battle of Ideas as a schoolboy, the ruling party and prevailing ideology seemed monolithic and impregnable, but they were not. The NP was compelled to abandon its own ideology. The ANC will have to do likewise. It will eventually have to liberalize economically, just as the NP had to liberalize. Even the communists in the ANC and the government will find themselves having to search for pragmatic solutions. The question is whether they can be prevented from doing more damage before they begin the retreat from revolutionary ideology into liberal pragmatism. South Africans who want to hasten that day can do so by joining the battle of ideas. Democracy provides the opportunity and free speech the weapon. I think that that's a, a, a real rallying cry uh, for ordinary South Africans who might feel a bit despondent about where South Africa finds itself at the moment. And I wanted to maybe take this opportunity to give you the last word um, to maybe provide some encouragement for those who are still wanting to, to see a, a more liberal democratic future for South Africa, one which is, is prosperous and where uh, individuals are allowed to, to flourish and to lead lives of their choosing. There's a huge amount of despondency around, David, as you well know, with people immigrating, if they possibly can, that's not an option for the great majority of us. That's not an option for the great majority of us to move to the Western Cape either. Um, you know, you don't win battles unless you fight them. And there is a huge and very important and powerful South African tradition. Uh, liberalism is South Africa's oldest uh, political ideology. It triumphed 
over huge odds in the past in simply staying there, staying put, getting important liberal ideas entrenched in the constitution. Organizations such as the Institute are valiantly engaged in the battle of ideas. I don't know whether we are going to win, but the point is you have to keep on fighting. Um, and we are fighting and we, over the last 25 years, there have been some successes. The judiciary would have much, much less independence than is the case at the moment had the ANC had its way with legislation which the Institute was able to block. The expropriation without compensation legislation would by now be on the statute book without the efforts of the Institute and others, but predominantly ourselves, to block that legislation. They'll, they'll still come with it um, when they feel that they have a better opportunity of getting it enacted. But so far, we have stalled it. We've stalled the national health insurance system. And of course, in addition to the Institute and a couple of other traditional English language organizations mainly, there are a whole new range of, of Afrikaans organizations, Sakelicha, AfriForum, Solidarity, which have joined the broadly liberal campaign in prosecuting the battle of ideas. So liberalism, as far as organizational liberals are concerned, is stronger now than it was in 1994. And this is a very, very good uh, development. And we have to fight even harder if we want to win. I hope you enjoyed this series of tributes to the late Mr. John Kane Berman. If you would like to know more about the life and legacy of Mr. Kane Berman, I would encourage you to check out the links in the show notes where I've included various obituaries and other biographical information. I've also included a link to a prior conversation that I had with Mr. Kane Berman on this very podcast, where he and I reflected on the legacy of the Institute of Race Relations and his time spent leading the IRR through three turbulent decades. My name is David Ansara. This is the Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.